Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicNPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest is Phil Cook, who is author of One Big Thing, Discovering What You Were Born to Do. Today we will discuss Discovering Your Purpose in Life. Phil has been an agent of change for millions of people through his work in television and the media. He lectures at Yale University, UC Berkeley, and UCLA, and has spent the past 30 years advising many large organizations. He has appeared on MSNBC, CNBC, CNN, and Fox News, and his work has been profiled in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, and the Wall Street Journal. He is the author of Jolt, Get the Jump on a World That's Constantly Changing. He blogs on change, disruption, culture, and media. Phil, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. This is a topic that I have to imagine touches everyone's lives at one point or another or maybe throughout our lives. This may sound very basic, but what do we mean when we say discovering your purpose in life? Is this strictly a business purpose or is this a personal goal purpose? What are we talking about? Well, actually, it's both. Actually, it's both. I I had the opportunity to speak at business organizations and events and conferences around the world. And invariably, when I, after I speak at one of these events, people come up to me, and sometimes in their 50s, 60s, even 70s, and say, you know, Phil, I've worked all my life. I've been an executive all my life, or I've worked in business all my life. But I've got to tell you, I'm not sure if I've really accomplished what I was put on the earth to do. I think deep inside of us, we have something bigger than just going to work every day. We have a desire to accomplish something significant with our lives. And so, so many people struggle with that. Sure, we go to work every day, and maybe that's fun, maybe it's interesting, maybe we feel even passionate about it, but it is, is it really accomplishing something greater? Do we feel like we're leaving a legacy and making an impact on the culture? So I wrote the book just because I meet so many people that struggle with trying to figure out what is that thing I'm supposed to pursue? What is that thing I'm supposed to focus on in my life? And that really is what the genesis of the book came from. One of the things that I've noticed over time is that as we grow in our lives, our personalities and our goals shift with that personality growth. Could it be that rather than having one purpose in life, we have varying purposes that shift as we grow older? It's a great question. It's a great question. And there's no question that that our interests, our desires, our passions shift and change as we get older. But what what I discovered, and really the, the purpose of the book, I've spent probably 35 years of my career working with organizations around the world, mostly with nonprofits. I do an enormous amount of work. Our company in Burbank, California, Cook Pictures, does an enormous amount of work with nonprofit organizations throughout the world. And one thing I discovered years ago through working with these guys is that the organizations that get noticed, the ones that are outstanding, the ones that do amazing work, are not the ones that are pretty good at a lot of things. The ones that really get on the radar out there and and make a difference are the ones that are extraordinary at one big thing. And I started applying that to our life. And so I started thinking, you know, what about us? So many times we're pretty good at a lot of things in business or at work or wherever we are. Uh, Maybe even as students, we're just, we're, we're average at a lot of things. We can do a lot of things pretty well, but do we do one thing extraordinarily well? And that's really the big question. And so when I talk about one big thing, 
I'm not talking about necessarily a job. Uh, your one big thing may not be a coach or an insurance salesman or executive or a teacher, but it's more of an overarching purpose for your life that when you figure that out, it could be accomplished in a lot of different ways. For instance, my one big thing is helping people share their story more effectively with the culture. If you're an artist or a writer or a business person or a leader of some kind and you, have a, you feel like you have a message and a story to tell, you want to get a book out there or a, a movie out there or a business launched, we help them engage the culture and get that story told and find an audience that wants to hear it. So it, that's my passion, but the truth is I can live that passion out in a lot of different ways. I can speak at conferences and events. I can write books like One Big Thing. Um, I can consult with clients. We have a consulting business with our clients around the world that we help them share their story more effectively. So really the, the, the book is about finding that overarching purpose, that passion, that, that destiny of your life, and then helping you figure out, what are the ways I can express that in a different job or different position or a different role? That makes a huge difference. When you say discovering what you were born to do, is that discovering what you're really good at or is that discovering what you want to do? And are they the same thing? <laughs> That's a good question. I wrote, it's interesting. I wrote an article for foxnews.com recently on their site called Please Stop Following Your Dreams. And um, the, the book was, or the article was about the fact that I've got a stack of screenplays, motion picture screenplays on my desk that have been sent to me by very earnest, very passionate, very committed writers. The problem is they're terrible. They're just really, really terrible. And so I think what I would encourage those people to do, I mean, so many of us follow, have this dream that that's just never going to happen. We're not equipped for that dream. We're not good at what that dream entails. For instance, I think my, the window at, at 58, the window for me being a walk-on for the Los Angeles Lakers is probably closed. That's, that dream is just never going to happen. And I think we live in this myth that if, if we can just dream it, it can happen. Well, no, that's not so true. I think we need to step back, figure out what we're really extraordinary at doing. What are we wired for? What are we gifted at? What were we born with a certain knack to do that other people aren't? Find those things, and that will help point you in the direction of that one big thing. And Then you have a dream that could really be fulfilled and could impact a significant number of people and make a real difference in your own life. What happens when what you're really good at isn't necessarily what you like. What happens if you're really good at something but you don't like it? Well, it's funny. I was talking to a friend of mine at a party last night, and he said he's an acting teacher here in Hollywood. And he's, I asked him the very same question. I said, what if you get a student who, who dreams of being an actor, but they're just terrible at it? And uh, the thing that they want to do, maybe they're just not very passionate about. And he said he actually had a woman like that recently, and he said we, he wrestles all the time with, can you be brutally honest with people? I just think that we need to be brutally honest with ourselves and understand that although I may be passionate about basketball, I'm never going to have a career in basketball. That's just not going to happen. I'm not good at it. I'm not wired that way. I enjoy playing, but I'm just not physically able to make that happen. It's not going to happen. So let me focus on an area that I'm really good at. And what I believe, this is just my opinion, and, and I talk about this in the book, when you find that place that you're wired for, when you find that place that you're extraordinary, you will love it. You Trust me, it's, it's not something you will dread because every part of you is pointed in that direction. Every part of you wants to, and, and you're going to achieve a lot. You're going to achieve things. You're going to get recognition. You're going to achieve goals, and it's going to be tough to walk away and say, you know what, I really don't like that kind of success. So I really believe that if we get tapped into what we're born to do, what we're good at, what we're wired for, we're going we're gonna to fall in love with it because it's going to make a huge difference in our lives.
one of the things that you say in the book that caught my attention is that perhaps many of us think that what we were born to do is sort of set in stone, but you say that you doubt, and I'm quote here, I seriously doubt if we have a lockdown, concrete, unchanging destiny we were born to accomplish. And you say that destiny isn't a task and it's not an endpoint. Would you tell us about that? Yeah, it's a great question. I look at destiny as a moving target. For instance, if if your son goes to Iraq and or Afghanistan and comes home with, uh, you know an amputee, wounds from the war, that doesn't derail his destiny. If your husband leaves you, your wife leaves you, that doesn't derail your destiny. Because terrible things happen doesn't mean your purpose is done and your life is over. I think destiny adapts and changes. I think we still can accomplish our goals. We can still accomplish those dreams. But the truth is we have to be flexible. We live in a world of amazing change today. I, I think we live in the most disrupted, uh, distracted culture in the history of the world. Some researchers uh, tell us that we're being bombarded with 5,000 media messages a day. And in that world, how do you ever get anything accomplished? And In fact, I've discovered here in Hollywood that failing, when people fail at a business or a, a job or a project, most people fail, I've discovered, not because they're not committed or they're not good at it or they're not trying. Most people fail because they simply get distracted. And this incredible world where distractions are everywhere. I mean, today, there are video monitors and gas pumps and elevators. I mean, it's amazing how often we get distracted. And one thing for your business listen, listeners to think about is that some research indicates that when you're distracted at work, when you're sitting in your office working on a project and you're intense and you're focused, and somebody walks in the door and interrupts you, it generally takes up to 40 minutes to get back to the same level of focus you were at before that interruption. I'm a big believer in shutting the door and getting to work. You know, everybody talks about having the open door policy at work. You know, we always want to reach out to our employees. We want to have relationships at work, which is great, and I think it's important. However, there's also a time to shut the door and get down to work because distractions can eat away at our day in enormous amounts. And if, if a person walking in my office sits down and chats, and once that's over, it takes me 40 minutes to get back to that late, same level of focus I was at, the question becomes, how many distractions can we handle in a day before the entire day is completely blown? So we forget that distractions matter. And in a world where we need to let – honestly, I think that the most valuable commodity of the 21st century is going to be undivided attention. I mean, here, how rarely do you really get someone's undivided attention? We go into the conference room for a meeting, and everybody pulls their iPhone or their Android or whatever and puts their mobile device and puts it on the table. Everybody's always looking under the table, checking their email instead of looking at each other. Uh, I went to lunch the other day with a business executive, and I don't think he ever once put his phone down. He literally had his fork in his left hand and his phone in his right hand during the entire meal. So I think we live in this world of continuous partial attention. We never fully focus on anything. So I think in the future, if you want to make a huge inroad, if you want to make huge significant steps in your career, the ability to relearn focus is absolutely critical. Sorry, I didn't mean to rant. I'm, I'm probably going off on, on rabbit trails, but I think for business leaders, these kind of issues are incredibly, incredibly important. 
it's interesting because I just had a guest recently who talked about that issue specifically and how it's so easy to get distracted even in the business environment. One of the things that she talked about was how tempting it is to check emails frequently because checking emails is a rewarding experience. Mm-hmm. We feel good checking on emails. And so she was talking about exactly that. What I I'll thought tell you of, this. I, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, what I was going to say is in relation to what you mentioned earlier about distractions, it makes me think of something that someone said to me one time not that long ago. He said that I was suffering from FOMO. Hmm. Have you ever heard of FOMO? No, tell me about that. I had never heard of it either. Fear of missing out. Oh, that's good. I had chosen not to go on an activity. And I was concerned that on that one drive that I didn't go out, they were going to see everything that I hadn't seen so far. And he said, chill, you have FOMO. (laughs) Boy, that is really true with emails. You know, we're afraid that we'll miss that one email that's going to be so incredibly important. We just we, we set up notifications on our computer to beep us when the e- when emails come in. Um, I'm just staggered. It ha- well, I'll give you a good example. My wife and I were at a wedding last year, and about four rows in front of us, um, there was a guy sitting there that had a Bluetooth earpiece in his ear, and you know it has that little blue blinking light on it, incredibly distracting. And the usher actually came forward and said, "Sir, the bride's about to come down the aisle. Would you mind taking the earpiece out of your ear?" And he said, "Oh no." No, I may get an important phone call during the wedding. I need to keep it in. So sure enough, the lights lowered, the bride came down the aisle, and that stupid thing started blinking like a cheap disco ball in the guy's ear. And it just made me just made me want to punch the guy. You get so frustrated that he thinks that phone call is so important, he's willing to interrupt a, a, a wedding to keep that thing in his ear. We're the same way. I've got a photo I use in some of my presentations during the Arab uprising, an incredible photo of two guys shooting they're shooting rifles, shooting, fighting for their life, and a third guy behind them checking his email on his mobile device. I mean, come on. In the middle of a firefight in the Middle East, this guy's got to check his email on his mobile phone. So you're exactly right. The fear of you know, being left out happens physically when we go on trips or we're, we're at the office, but it also happens with emails, Twitters, text messaging. We just think if we put that phone down or turn it off, We're going to miss that email that could change our life. It's absolutely crazy. That goes to what you were saying about how easy it is to get distracted in today's world. And it's not just at work. It's at home because people leave their office and they're carrying their mobile devices into their personal time as well. Well, you know what? You said a good thing about that feeling of accomplishment. And uh, statistics indicate that 40% of a typical employee's work day-to-day is made up of sending or receiving email messages. So you remember, we used to actually go to work and accomplish things. Now we go to work, and 40% of our day, almost half the day, is you're shoving email messages around. And we think we're accomplishing something. Now, I'll tell you why. A neurologist had discovered that the same endorphin center in your brain that fires when we experience great pleasure, like we roll the dice, that that rush we get when we roll the dice uh, gambling or we pull a slot machine gambling, that kind of rush is the same endorphin center that fires 
when we hit send on an email message. So psychologists are actually studying the possibility of email or I should say internet addiction because we feel an actual physical rush when we hit send on our email. So we actually are getting this sense of accomplishment that's biological. It's not just the sense of mental accomplishment, but biologically our brain is firing off a pleasurable signal when we hit send because we think we're accomplishing something. And so I, I, I'm a big believer in you know, restricting as much as possible, restrict when you check your email. Because I, I don't check it first thing in the morning. It's interesting that I used to come in the office, sit down and check my email. And lo and behold, I'd look up shortly, and it's 11 or 12 o'clock in the morning. I'm still checking my email. You get sucked into this amazing time suck, this hole, this black hole that you just do email after email after email. It's like an addiction. So what I've discovered is let's go into work, and let's do the most important thing we have to do today. What's that project? What's that task that you need to accomplish today that really matters? Do that first. And after that's over, or at least after you've made a few really strong steps in that direction, then maybe check your email. And I'll tell you, if you can do that, it's tough, but if you can do that, your productivity will shoot right through the roof because you're actually getting things done and then getting caught in that abyss of checking your email. It'll make a huge difference. You'd be interested to know that we've had two guests recently on the podcast that have talked about that topic, which is the addiction to digital and technology and how pervasive it's becoming, that people, their stress level is so high because it's with them all the time. People who That's even right. have trouble sleeping, it's, uh, it's scary. Now, let's go back to our discussion on discovering what you were born to do. Sure. How do you discover what you were born to do? It sounds maybe like it would be very easy that you would just intuitively know this from when you were a child, but it's not really so easy, is it? No, it's not. In fact, it's it's, it's kind of interesting. Uh, I, I in the book I really list four questions and. In, in a way, it's kind of simple because we don't. We, we think that finding that one big thing, finding that purpose, that overarching destiny of our lives, we think that's so something mystical, something weird. Um, but the truth is, it's really not. And I've isolated it to four simple questions. And one of the questions really comes from what what you were just saying. And the first question I ask is. What are we good at doing? You know, what are we naturally good at? And and people don't, you know, it's so funny. People don't think about that. But the truth is, all of us grow up from our earliest days with being wired to do things that certain other people can't do. I I say go back to the prom committee. Go back to the homecoming committee. Remember in high school where the planning committee sat around a table and we said, you know, Susan, you're really creative. Why don't you come up with a theme for the prom? Bob, you're good with people. Why don't you host it? Uh, Sam, you're great with numbers. Why don't you do the budget? And, and we go around the room, and, and people notice what you have a knack for doing. I, I deal with professional uh, athletes a lot, and they will tell me, you know, Phil, I just, it's interesting. I can just, I could always catch a ball better than anybody else. I could always kick better than anybody else. I could always throw better than anybody else. And they just realized it went into a career in, in, in sports. We've done a number of comedy programs with our company, Cook Pictures, in Burbank. And we've done a number of comedy shows. And one thing comedians almost always tell you is, you know, I was the class clown. People just laughed at my stuff. And they paid attention. And they went into a career as a successful comedian because they tapped into something they were born to do. I wonder how many insurance salesmen today are miserable because they were the class clown, but they didn't pay attention to that. So I, I think starting your journey to figuring out what that one big thing is in your life, find out what comes easy for you. Think about what you have a knack for. And it doesn't mean it doesn't take work. 
You know, I, I'm, I'm a writer, and I'm a creative person. I've always been the creative guy in any group I've been in. I'm the guy that has to come up with the, the theme or the, the slogan or the name or whatever, or the sketch or the story. I'm a creative guy. Now, that doesn't mean I don't work over every book that I write and, and sweat a lot trying to figure out ideas and study creativity, but it does mean I have a knack to do it, and that's been a window into what my one big thing is. So I encourage people start with what Go back over your life and think about those things, that those times when people said something to you that, oh, you know something, you're awfully good with numbers, or you know what, you're really good with people, or you know, you inspire people. I think we all are born that way, and we all have things that we're good at, but the problem is we grow up, we forget about those things, we don't pay attention, and we don't tie them in to what our career could ultimately be. You talk in your book about the three ways that it's most likely your purpose might be revealed. Those people who are sort of, they know all their lives, what they're going to be, they're born almost into it. And then there's the other two. Would you tell us about that? Well, it's interesting. Some people, my daughter's a good example. My daughter's an actress, and I think from the time she came out of the womb, that's what she wanted to be. You know, as a kid, she had a trash can. My wife helped her. Uh, set up a trash can in the backyard full of costumes, and she filled it with costumes, and she just lived this life of fantasy, and she was acting out, and so she was involved in school plays and school musicals and all her life. That's, that's been her dream. She hasn't even wavered for a moment. But then there are other people that they find it in a couple other different ways, sometimes through an epiphany. You know, sometimes we'll discover in a, in a you know, the, the, window, the lights come on, the windows of heaven open, the angelic choir sings, and for whatever reason we hit on, oh, this is what it is. This is what I'm supposed to do with my life. That kind of happened to me early on in college. I was uh, making movies. I made, back in the 60s and early 70s, I made films in high school with a bunch of my friends, and they were terrible. They were my, got my dad's home movie camera, and we went out and made space movies and war movies and army movies and mafia movies and just fun stuff with my friends. And I took those to college, never thinking I'd do that for a living. But a friend saw my movies and said, you know what, I'm taking a film class, and I can show you how to put those things together and how to, how to make them better. So I went down to the film laboratory one night, and we were working, and the professor was there. And he said, you know what, I've been watching your movie, and I've got kids that have been taken for three years that don't do as well. Can, could I show that in my class tomorrow? I said, well, sure, if I could sit there. And so I came to class the next day, sat on the back row, and he showed my little movie. And like I say, it was terrible, but, but they talked about it. They discussed it. And this bolt of lightning hit me, this, this, the most crystal clear moment I've ever had in my life, that if I can do something with a camera that makes people talk, that's what I'm supposed to do with my life. And so I never look back. I've got a production company in Los Angeles. We make television programs and films for a number of clients all over the world. And I've just been close to a camera. I've been writing screenplays and stories and, and uh, videos and television programs for years. We've done Super Bowl commercials, and so I've just never looked back, and that was a crystal clear moment for me. But a third group of people find it after a long process, and this is probably the biggest group. These are people that they try a little of this, they try a little of that, they, they seem to be good at that, but it doesn't really fulfill what they want to do with their life, and so they try something else. And after a while, putting the pieces together, and I think maybe the capstone of that journey could be reading a book like mine, One Big Thing, because in One Big Thing, I kind of put all these things together. And you discover after that long, sometimes frustrating journey, ah, this is it. You come to the conclusion that this is what I was put on the earth to do. I'm wired this way. I'm passionate about this. I'm good at it. Uh, People recognize it. 
this is what I'm supposed to do with my life. So, yeah, there's three ways we come, and sometimes we get jealous that other people have known all, all the time. Sometimes we get upset that some guy figures it out and we don't. But trust me, if we can stay on that journey, keep pursuing that one big thing for our lives, it'll result in eventually us discovering what our purpose is, and it will change everything. It moves us from a job to a dream, and it makes a huge, huge difference in our own lives. Could it be, Phil, that for those people who don't know right away and who don't have an epiphany, or maybe even some of those that do have an epiphany, maybe the epiphany comes when they're ready. Maybe it it takes them a while to get to the point where they have the necessary skills or the necessary maturity or... That's what, a great what, point. I think I agree with you 100%. I think that we need, you know, I, I discovered in Hollywood that you need to be good at what you do. If you want to, you know, I go back to my argument that we live in the most distracted, disruptive culture in the history of the world. It's a hyper-competitive culture. The truth is, there is so much competition. There are people, you know, you've got a target on your forehead. If you're a business person and you're moving up the ladder at your company or you're trying to establish your organization or your company or you're trying to step out in some way, you've got a target on your head because there are other people that want that job, that want that position. And so there's no question that you need to develop the skills to make it happen. You know, good intentions are nice, but they don't cut it when it comes to actually performing. So I think it's incredibly important that we realize that that, you know, working into the skill level, working into the people. And by the way, when it comes to skill, let me say this. In business and in life, your people skills will be far more important than whatever skill it takes to do your job. If you're a coach or a teacher or a business leader, a writer, filmmaker, whatever you are, your ability to get along with people is going to be far more important than your ability to write or sell or do finances or whatever it is you do. Because if you can't inspire people, if you can't work with people, I saw a study the other day that said something like 40% of employees in America have been passed over for a promotion because they couldn't make the changes in their life necessary to go to the next level. People need to understand how to change and adapt and get along with people. And I saw a survey the other day that said most people in America get fired, not because they're not good at what they do, not because they're not committed, not because they don't show up. Most people get fired simply because they can't get along with other people in the office. That's that's a huge statement. Think about that for a minute. Most people get fired because they can't get along with other people in the office. So I think it's incredibly important that we learn people skills. And I again, I apologize for going off in a rant, but... I'm so passionate about business people, business leaders, and people who are pursuing their purpose and their calling in life, understanding that if you can be a magnet for people, if you can inspire and motivate people, trust me, you'll have a job for the rest of your life. Yeah, I just really believe that those people are an incredible value. They're incredibly high demand. Uh, being able to inspire and motivate other people and teams is just a remarkable gift. If I'm hearing you correctly, then it's not just about figuring out what you're really good at, there's got to be a practical business side to this discovery process because if you're really good at whatever single thing it is and you are unable to interact with other people effectively, you might still be left behind. That's true. That's true. You know, it's funny. I I meet people here in Hollywood all the time who call themselves idea people. I'm an idea people. I mean, I'm an idea person. And um, the truth is, ideas are great, ideas are important, but ideas are a dime a dozen. I I don't want the idea guy. I want to know the guy that can make the idea happen. I I jokingly say sometimes that the guy that invented the wheel was no big deal. Uh, The guy that invented the other three, now he was a genius. 
So the ability to execute, the ability to make ideas happen is so incredibly, incredibly important. So yes, it's a great thing to figure out your one big thing, uh, possibly the biggest thing of all. However, unless you know how to execute that, how to make it happen, then it doesn't matter. And in the book, it's funny you say that because in the book, I actually have a section on how to transition. If you're in a current job that you feel is kind of a dead-end job, you're not passionate about it, you're not fulfilled, and you suddenly discover. Maybe you read my book. Maybe you go to other things, and, and along that pathway, that journey, you discover your one big thing. How do you make that transition from the job you're at to the job, you know, from where you are to where you want to be? And it's strategic. You have to be very careful and very sensitive because you don't want to burn your bridges. You don't want to cut the limb off behind you. And so you have to be very strategic and careful about making that transition happen. And that may, you know, maybe we want to discuss that because I do think that's so incredibly important for, for particularly business leaders. That makes me think of another question, and I think they all kind of tie together. You talked earlier that you, about how you've done a lot of work with nonprofits. And, of course, the mission of nonprofits, in theory, is not to make money, but rather to fulfill whatever it is that they're in business for, whatever their mission as an organization is. So if we take that back to the individual and you say, well, I'm doing what I'm really great at, but I can't pay the rent, are you... Have you discovered what you're really good at and you're just lacking the business skills to take you to the next step? How do you know? Well, it's important. And, and I've got a section of the book that talks about that very question. You're, you're very perceptive and you're exactly right on. And I do think that while nonprofits are different from a business in the sense that their mission is a different way, they still have to get on the radar. They still have to get their message heard because they need to attract donors. They need to attract people that support that vision, that will partner with them to help make that vision happen. So if you want to build water wells in India, for instance, in remote places in India, no matter how great a vision that is, no matter how great and noble that purpose is, unless you can attract donors to help you accomplish that purpose, you failed. And so I often tell people that I don't care how great your mission is or how noble your message is. If nobody's listening, you failed. And so it's incredibly important that we understand that you're right, making a living at this is important. So I wrote the book not for people just to figure out their dream and then sit on the sofa and eat Cheetos. I think it's important that we figure out how how to navigate that dream into an actual paying business. A good example is writing books. You know, I, I started making that transition really, really matters. You don't want to figure out your one big thing and then go up to your boss and say, you know what, I just read Phil Cook's new book, One Big Thing. I figured it out. I'm quitting. Um, you're going to struggle. You're going to, you're going to find that making that transition is harder than you think. So what I did was I, when I was discovering my one big thing, I came in the office two hours early every day and started writing my first two books. And I actually finished two books coming in two hours early every morning before the phone started ringing, before everybody else started showing up. I'd have two moments of quiet with just me and my computer and I actually wrote two books doing that. So before I ever left my job, I had two books in the market out there already. So I think it's important that you're exactly right. We need to figure out a strategy for how, turning that job into a dream. How do we actually make money at this? The intersection between finding your passion and making a living is incredibly important to find. And I talk about it in the book, and I think that if we can achieve that. So I would love for your listeners to not walk away thinking it's just some pie-in-the-sky kind of thing. We do have to work and, and develop the skills necessary to make the one big thing work for us. But when we do, 
I tell you this, when you figure it out, it ceases becoming, it's, you know, it stops becoming a job and it becomes an incredible love, an incredible passion because you stop doing this drudgery work thing and suddenly you feel like you're firing on all cylinders, you're accomplishing your purpose, you're making a dent, you're making a difference. And it's huge. It's such a big transition. It's very hard to describe. Would you say liberating is a good word? Oh, liberating is a great word. It's a great word. I mean, you you feel these shackles. I mean, how often? How, I, I was I I read the other day that a study I think from the Wall Street Journal that said that seventy percent of people in America don't like their job. Think about that. You know, it's funny during you know this recent presidential election. It's all about jobs, jobs, jobs. Everybody talks about jobs, but why are we so obsessed about jobs that seventy percent of us are going to end up hating? I think instead of being so obsessed about jobs, let's start getting obsessed about finding that one big purpose in our life, that one big thing. Once we figure that out, then we can move toward a job that we will really love and be passionate about instead of constantly going into work, working for that idiot boss, working at a job we don't like, working in a position they're always nervous about. Um, that stress of being in a, a role or a job that you don't like or are uncomfortable with, that's a terrible, that's a terrible burden to carry. And I think it's incredibly important that we figure out how to lighten that burden, make that job more of a passion, and then, um, then we can sail really sore. That question that you just asked made me think of the potential answer why is everybody so worried about getting a job and then they get a job and they're not happy with it? And that made me remember that many people, if not most people, are extroverted. And you talk about that in the book. You talk about personality types and Myers-Briggs. Yeah. Would you would you discuss that? Yeah, I think, you know, it, it, personality types are fascinating to me. I, I There's a couple out there on the market, and some you can find – you, there's a great book called StrengthsFinder 2.0 that when you buy the book, they give you a code that you can go online and take a personality test. Uh, the DISC profile, D-I-S-C, is a, a, a pretty popular one. And like you say, the, the Myers-Briggs profile is a really significant one. And the purpose of a personality test is really to start revealing what our strengths and weaknesses are. I, I'm a big believer that half of being good is knowing what you're bad at and stop doing that. You know, we, we spend so much time working on our weakness. I'm a big believer that we need to spend less time working on our weakness and more time working on our strengths. For instance, I'm not a numbers person. My, my wife is not a numbers person. Kathleen and I, when we got married, early on we realized if we're, we're going to get divorced if we have to argue over our checkbook one more time. This is not pretty because we, we're both terrible at it. So we found a lady in our church, sweet little old lady who had been a bookkeeper, and we talked to her about helping us with our finances and setting up our checkbook, and I was starting a freelance career at the time and how to make that work financially. So she stepped in and was a huge help. Well, I got into my 40s, and I realized, wait a second, I'm a middle-aged man, and I can't even balance my checkbook. Something's wrong with me. So I arrogantly took it away from her, and I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to learn how to do this. So I spent six months trying to balance my checkbook. And after six months, you know, on a scale of one to ten, if I was a one at the beginning, maybe I was a four at the end after all that effort. And I realized that it occurred to me that nobody pays for a four. People pay for a nine or a ten. So why don't I go back to that lady, have her do what she's good at doing, get that off my plate, let me spend that extra time focusing what I'm really, really good at. And that changed everything for me. That was a huge huge step for me. And so since that time, I've really preached the gospel of focus on your strengths. 
spend less time working on what you're bad at, working on your weakness. And the truth is, we don't all have assistants, we don't all have a staff, we don't all have a team, but if we can find friends, family members, associates, coworkers that would say, look, I'm, I'm not good at this, and you are. Can you help me here, and I'll help you where you're in areas that you're weak. It can make a huge impact on your career because you're spending less time working on things you're obviously not good at that nobody cares about and more and more time on things where you're, you're really extraordinary. And I, I think that's the way to build up your career. And again, let me go back to our early in our conversation when I talked about getting on the radar and getting noticed. It's not an egotistical thing. When I talk about this, it's not an ego thing. Getting on the radar is, matters. In your work, if you do extraordinary work, if you're a good employee, you want to be noticed. You want your boss to notice. You want his boss to notice. Uh, the way you're going to move up the ladder is you know, quit complaining about your salary and start focusing on an area that you could do extraordinarily well. You know, I'm, I'm a big advocate that in the office, start taking on the jobs nobody else wants. Start taking on the projects nobody else wants. Things that nobody else has the guts or the courage or the, the energy to do, you take those roles. And trust me, you will get noticed for, for excelling in those kinds of areas. So really in this cluttered, disruptive culture we live in, whoever you are, if you have a message to share, if you have a talent or a gift to share, getting noticed really does matter. So how we get our work noticed, how we get our project noticed, that becomes really, really important. And that's the one big thing. That's really the, the essence of one big thing, finding out what we're extraordinary at, fulfilling that in our lives, and then, oddly enough, that's the best way to get your work and your life noticed out there is by being extraordinary at one big thing. So if I'm understanding correctly, Part of the one big thing process is figuring out what you're really good at. But another very important part of that process is once you do that, developing a brand for yourself and all of the necessary business tools that are part of that success formula. Is that right? Yeah, the, the brand word is good. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've just written a book. I, 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 you'll notice I'm an obsessive writer, but I just, just wrote a book that literally, uh, ju- it, it's coming out right before Christmas. It's called Unique, Telling Your Story in the Age of Brands and Social Media. And it's really about organizations. It's about nonprofits. It's about artists and filmmakers and business leaders. How do we tell our story? And the definition for brand, you know, a lot of people, Branding has become such a buzzword in the business world, and I think it's gotten gone to extremes and taken too far. But the simple truth is the definition of a brand is a compelling story that surrounds a product or a person or an organization. In other words, you have a brand. I have a brand. Oprah has a brand. Um, you know, Starbucks has a brand. Nike has a brand. NBC has a brand. In other words, what do people think of when they think of you? And that's something I think every business leader needs to sit down and consider. What do people think of when they think of you? Lucy in accounting, you know, Juan in sales, Bob in, in management, whatever, wherever you are, whatever you do, what do people think of when they think of you? Do they think of you as, oh, he's the guy that takes off early on Fridays. He's the guy that never, he, we can't count on him. He always bolts when, when things get tough. Or do they look at you and go, oh, yeah, that's the person that always comes through. That's the person that doesn't settle for second best. That's the person that, that makes us look good. What is that brand? Because if you can figure out that perception and then work to influence that perception, that can have a huge, huge impact on, on your career. And, and also, that's part of the taking the jobs nobody else wants sex. If you, if you develop a reputation of, oh, you know what, he's the one that's willing to take the tough jobs, that 
translates to salary, that translates to benefits, that translates to moving up the ladder. I have a friend who's a movie producer here in town, and he works for a particular studio, and they know he's the guy to go to when the going gets tough. And they had a movie that was shooting in Canada a few years ago, and it went way behind schedule, got way over budget. It was a disaster. And guess what? They called my friend. They said, go up there, be an adult, take care of business. So he flew to Canada, got on a film set, started meeting with the director and the producer and the writer and the budget people, started working it out, got it back on track financially, got it back on track schedule-wise, and the movie actually came in ahead of schedule and under budget. Let me tell you what, in a world where movies cost $100 million to make, my friend has paid a lot of money for his ability to keep those things on track. So you get known, you get perceived, you get a brand as a person who can do certain things. That really impacts leadership, it impacts management, impacts the people that can take your career to the next level. Am I making any sense here, or am I just rambling? I think you're making sense. Good. You're you're saying that it isn't just about figuring out who you are. There's no magic solution that this requires repositioning and rebranding yourself and being aware of all of the things that are business related. Yeah. There's never a magic bullet. I have to say there's never a magic bullet. It's it's um it's tough, and um, I think the, the, the discovering your one big thing, I think, is the key that unlocks all the others. There's no question, because once you figure that out, then you know what skills to develop. Then you know what brand to pursue. Then you know what types of projects you want to accomplish. Then you know the direction you want to go. So discovering your one big thing, and that's why I subtitled the book, um, One Big Thing, Discovering What You Were Born to Do, because when you figure that out, what I was born to do, this is, this is not just – a passing fancy. This is just not uh, something I will like today and may not like next week. This is what I was born to do. If you can figure that out, that unlocks the key to your the skills you ought to pursue and the education you should pursue. And by the way, speaking of education, let me say every business person listening to this this podcast needs to understand that growth never stops. You never ever stop growing. You may have, you may be done with school, but you're not done with learning. And I think it's incredible. And and, and maybe uh, chances are they know this because they're listening to us right now. They're, I believe in going to the places where the best ideas happen, where the smartest people are, uh, reading the books that you can learn the most from. And so I just I'm a big believer in growth. And you're right. It, it's it's not about just discovering your one big thing. It's about following through, growing, learning, taking your life and your career to the next level. Phil, how can you say that among our listeners there are people who are still looking to figure this out for themselves? If they've, if they've listened to this whole conversation, they're, they're keen on the topic, they may still want to find out what their one big thing is. What would you say are the top three things that they can do to find their way toward figuring out what their one big thing is? Super question, super question. I can't think of a better question to, to bring all this together. Um, I, let, let me ask, let, let me tell you four things, four incredibly important keys. If you're listening to the podcast right now, write them down. I'd encourage you to sit down and write these things down and really sit alone and think about these. And number one is the question we've already asked. Um, what comes easy for you? Number one is what comes easy for you. Figure that out. What is those things that people have remarked about over the years? So, Bob, you're so good with people. Or, Susan, you really know how to inspire people. I, I, I happen to be the guy that keeps my family together at the mall. You know, everybody, we hit the mall. Everybody goes in five different directions. I'm the guy that all my life, I've been the guy that keeps everybody together. So I'm kind of a, 
overall organizer strategist guy, I guess. But the, the, noticing those things really start cluing us in to, to areas that we're strong in. The second thing is, is a question, what do you love? What do you love? Because until you figure out what you're really passionate about, you're never going to really figure out that one big thing. And, and obviously there's some people that don't equate a job with love. You know, it's my job. I do what I love after, after work. That's my hobby or something else. But the truth is, if, like we said earlier, if we can find that intersection between a job and a dream, then we've really got something because you can get paid to do what you love. But to start out, start out with, you need to figure out what is that thing you really love and what is the thing you're willing to, you know, how much are you willing to risk to achieve that, to make that happen. If I wanted to be a professional athlete, what am I willing to risk to make that happen? If I wanted to make a movie, what am I willing to risk to make that happen? If I wanted to launch a business, what am I willing to risk to make that happen? So figure that out because what you love is a real key. And then a third principle is, let me, and this is a strange question for a lot of people, is what drives you crazy? I really believe, you know, what makes you nuts? I really believe that very often the thing that, drives us crazy is the thing we were born to fix. It may be an app on your iPhone. It may be a policy at work. It may be a social cause. You may hate homelessness or hunger. I have a friend I talk about in the book, Christine Kane, who has a, an outreach to sex traffickers around the, uh, to, to victims of sex trafficking around the world. And she heard stories about what was happening to these young girls all over the world being kidnapped, abducted, raped, put into the pipeline for selling themselves all over the world. And it just made her physically ill. Now, if that's not something that she loved, it's not something she was passionate about, but she hated that so much that she decided to make a difference. And today, she's launched an international organization called the A21 Campaign that helps victims of sex trafficking worldwide. That came out of something she hated. So what is that about you? I, I spoke at the Sundance Film Festival a couple of years ago on, on this very issue, and a, a college student came up to me the next day and said, you know, Phil, when you talked about that thing you hated, I went back to my hotel room, I sat down, I wrote four things that literally drive me crazy. And when I looked at them on paper, I realized they all come from the same source. And like a window opened up, I suddenly realized what my purpose in life was. I'm going to fix that problem. And so it could be social, great social causes like hunger, homelessness, sex trafficking, or it could be, like I say, something in your iPhone, something about policies at work, something in your family, something that you see that makes you nuts and you think, why isn't that fixed? Why, isn't, why couldn't I come up with that? I think inventors are probably driven by this. So what are the things that drive you crazy? Figure that out. And then number four is what do you want to leave behind? What do you want your legacy to be? And this is incredibly important. Do you want to get to the end of your life and find that you never missed an episode of Oprah, you never missed filling out your Facebook status, or do you want to leave something significant behind? I think it's incredibly important. And, and the truth is, it doesn't matter how young you are. You may be 18, 20, 25. However young you are, it doesn't matter. It's time to start thinking about what's that thing you want to leave behind. What do you want people to remember about you? And it's not going to be the number of email messages you sent in your lifetime. It's not going to be about the number of gadgets you owned or the cars you drove. It's going to be about the lives you touched. And so start thinking about that, how you want to be remembered, because that will be a real key to helping move you forward. So that's the four questions. Um, I, I, I think it's really significant. Go back and think about it. You know, what comes easy for you? What do you love? What drives you crazy? And then, of course, what would you like to leave behind? If you can start answering those questions, you can start getting an idea of what that one big overarching purpose is for you, and it will change everything. 
Thank you, Phil, for joining us from Burbank, California. Thrilled to do it. I'm, I really enjoyed it. This has been fun. Your questions have been terrific, and I've had a great time. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Phil Cook, who is author of One Big Thing, Discovering What You Were Born to Do, who discussed discovering your purpose in life. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicMPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicMPR.com. That's editor at HispanicMPR.com. 